0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library. Available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
1: I got into teaching because as I said, there was nothing else I wanted to do except except write. I could have had I could have gone into uh, corporations, I suppose. But I never saw myself with a suit and a briefcase. I never saw myself with the little house in Long Island or up in Westchester. I never saw myself going home with the wife would open the door and say, Hi honey, I have I w I've just made us us a batch of martinis. And and that destroys the evening. I never saw that. And I didn't think and I didn't think I could move up the corporate ladder. I would move sideways maybe but I just I couldn't I couldn't do it.
2: I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In 1996, a retired New York City public school teacher named Frank McCourt published his first book, a memoir about his brutally impoverished Irish Catholic childhood in the slums of Limerick. If ever there was a rags-to-riches story in publishing, Angela's Ashes was it. The book would go on to receive the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, sell more than four million copies in hardcover alone, and become a film directed by Alan Parker. At the age of 66, Frank emerged almost overnight as one of the most celebrated authors in America. But if you knew Frank, you knew two things, at least. First, he never took anything at face value including, and perhaps especially, his own extraordinary, late-blooming success. And second, for all the joy and gratitude he took from his unexpected good fortune, he refused to ever completely shed the core of anger that remained from his childhood of poverty. That he was able to so often turn that anger into unforgettable humor was just one of the many reasons why he was such a gifted writer. As Frank himself tells us, however, before becoming that writer, he somehow had to learn what he still needed to know. And in order to do that, he first had to become a teacher.
1: Now, you know that, the, you know that teachers are, in the, in the hierarchy of the professions, the teachers are at the bottom of the scale. And I'm very sensitive to hierarchy having growing up as an Irish Catholic. I know what's up and what... <laughs> And what the gradations are. And I know the teachers like the downstairs maid go in the back door. A teacher goes to a party and, and uh, there are dentists and lawyers and doctors and, and uh, captains and, and colonels and majors of industry and commerce. And somebody, people would say to me, so what do you do? I'm a teacher. And they drift away. <laughs> it's not what you call a sexy topic at the part. But I became a teacher, and I went in with great trepidation because I wasn't prepared. I had never gone to high school. I'd never s- had set foot in hi- in high school. And the only and one of the reasons that the one thing that one of the great there are two major things: a negative and a positive thing in my life. The negative thing in my life was my father's alcoholism. If he hadn't been such a drunkard, if he had brought home even the unemployment, the doll, we would have had food. We might have had shoes. We would, we might have had a little dignity, but he—he he didn't. He drank it all away. And if, if you know anything about poverty, you know the worst part of it is that you're stripped of any dignity, any self-esteem. That's the worst part of it. You can—you can deal with the hunger in the far reaches of the night, but going down the street in rags with broken shoes, with, with kids your own age jeering at you, or saying, "When, you, when, you, when is your father going to buy you shoes?" You—kids are very cruel in that sense, although didn't bother most of the people in my school because they were all in the same boat. <laughs> Half of them were barefoot anyway. That was the negative thing. The positive thing, the best thing that ever happened to me was, uh, was that Mao Zedong attacked Korea and sent these legions in. And America got nervous. America got nervous and turned to me and, <laughs> and, and drafted me. And I was, sent to, I was sent to Fort Dix for 16 weeks of infantry basic training. And I thought my life was over, then in, in a few weeks I'd be gone to Korea. And I, one, the sight of one Chinese guy coming over here with a bayonet, I would have died of a heart attack. But they sent me instead to Germany. To Bavaria. Where I, w- they, they had me training dogs. I didn't like dogs, but that didn't matter to them, we're going to train dogs, German, German shepherds, because I'd, I'd spent two years delivering telegrams in Ireland, and uh, I, was, I was attacked by every dog in the south of Ireland, so I didn't like them, but I got, I got a dog eventually, I, the, the dog I got, we, we became friends, and so, so I spent my two years in Germany, and the best part of that then was we got the G.I. Bill, the Korean G.I. Bill. And when I came out of the army, I didn't know what to do with myself, because I had no education, no high school education. I'd never been inside a high school in my life. And uh, I just I, I went back to work, these are d- uh, jobs on the ports, uh, port warehouses and, and the piers, and I worked down there. And then I, w- I was living in the village, in, a, in Downing Street, in the village, and I... I used to go into a bar called the White Horse, where Dylan Thomas drank himself to death. Uh, that's the kind of place I like to frequent. <laughs> and I'm sitting at the bar, I was on a four to 12 shift down on one of the piers, and I said, I'll, um, I had a beer, a steiner beer, and a knock washed, And I, I started doing, engaging in an activity which is very dangerous for a young Irishman, asking myself the meaning of it all. And I couldn't find any answer that day. And I got frustrated and I walked out of the line uh, of the white horse and up along Bleecker I didn't know where I was going. This is all serendipity. I didn't know where I was going. I was frustrated. I didn't know what the hell. I didn't want to be working in the docks for the rest of my life. So I came to Washington Square and there was NYU. And I said, I think I'll try that. <laughs> so I went into NYU. I found the admissions office and they gave me a form to fill out and the part where it says high school, I they had to leave it blank. And they say, well, where did you go to high school? I said, uh, I never did. And they thought that it was very amusing. <laughs> where does he get the gall to come into NYU without a high school diploma? So uh, I explained to them that, I was, uh, that I'd read a lot of books, that I'd spent my life reading books. And, and, they st- and then uh, the, the dean of admissions was called over and, And I I think she was interested. I think she was flexible. That's the main thing. Usually they're not that flexible. They want your SAT scores and all that stuff. So they they admitted me on a year's probation, provided I maintained a B average. And after Leamy School in Limerick, I could have maintained an A average at Harvard. Because in Leamy School, if you didn't know, they'd beat the shit out of you. So, So... so you learn, you learn to learn. <laughs> and I thought NYU was easy after <laughs> e- the emails. After
2: Angela's Ashes, Frank wrote two other acclaimed memoirs, *Tiz* and Teacher Man, both of which managed to wring hilarity and insight out of his experiences trying to teach immigrants like himself in some of the most challenging classrooms in America.
1: The movie that had just come out then was The Blackboard Jungle. <laughs> and that was no motivation for teaching in a vocational high school. Except that that was fairly bland compared to what I walked into in McKee vocational high school. Because over there in Staten, I used to have to take the, take the train in from Brooklyn to Manhattan, then get on the ferry, go over there, walk up, down and same, back again. And I was commuting every morning. So I... I the worst part of a of a, of a vocational high school is the kids that want to be in your class when you're teaching English. They um, they want to be in their shops. They want to be in uh, what the, in, in auto mechanics and plumbing and sheet metal or whatever it was. And you're trying. And I was new and young, and I was 27 years old and I looked about 15 at the time. Uh, and I, it was very hard. And, and the only what saved me was when I opened my mouth, they said, "You'll teach." You Scotch or something? <laughs> no. English? No. I'm Irish. And they didn't know what that was. They were, they were, most, they were mostly Italians. They didn't care. So, uh, And then, uh, then I had a class of girls. 35 girls in white outfits. And those beehive hairdos where a sparrow could build a nest. And they came into the class and they sat down, they took out little out things they put on the desk, opened little mirrors, and they started doing them nails and their eyebrows. I said I said, what shop are you in, the girl? Or, We're in cosmetology. I said, what's what's that? Beauty culture. And, so I I'm trying to teach English. And they, they said, teacher, your hair, your hair is a... <laughs> your hair is a mess. And, uh, and your nails is a mess. Why don't you come up to beauty culture and we'll do you? <laughs> this, this was an invitation I declined. So gradually, what, what, I, what I discovered, the major lesson I discovered, I, I think somewhere along the line, I, deci- I decided I'd learn to learn. And what I learned from that experience as a teacher was that um, I, had to f- I had to drop on masks, get rid stop being a phony, stop... The only models I had for teaching were schoolmasters back in Limerick who made you memorize everything. If you didn't know it, just then, as I said, beat the shit out of you. So I couldn't do that in McKee Vocational High School because they some of those boys were on the football team. They would have <laughs> broken me in two. So, the, when the, kid, the kids were interested in me, because the, the, the accent opened, created a bridge. And I think they felt protective. I think they, were, they, they felt they had some kind of exotic on their hands. <laughs> and they wanted to know, uh, they wanted to know, they'd say, So, uh, Mr. McCall, where'd you go to high school? I never did. Yeah, it shows. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll get you later, you little bastard, you! <laughs> I'm the teacher. Well, I, I learned then. I learned. Uh, I learned. I, I had to move away from a very strict Irish educational philosophy uh, of 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 knock it into them or knock it out of them, whatever it was, and memorizing everything. And I had to. Be, I had to become a human being. That was the lesson I learned in that classroom. I had to. I had to be honest, because they knew. And over the 27 years, I knew it wouldn't work. Anytime you put on the mask with kids, especially, it's like being married, you're with them day after day. The the high school teacher has five classes a day, five days a week. So you have that class five days a week, and you have five classes, you have 170 kids, as I had, and you just, you just, um, you had to be open with them. And I I found, uh, I had to, I, I, I had to find my way, I had to find my style And eventually, uh, as a writer, I had to find my voice. But I had to find my way as a teacher. And I'd go up to the teacher's cafeteria, and I'd steer a course between two schools of educational philosophy on the one side of the old timers. And they'd say, don't you give them an inch. You're the teacher. You tell them nothing about yourself. You tell them what to do. You tell them, sit in their seat, sit up, open the window six inches from the top, don't give any. Don't tell them anything about yourself. That was the old school. Then I go up to the other side. Of the, the newer teachers, the uh, uh, acolytes of John Dewey, and says, "Well, you know, these kids are real people. We have to meet their felt needs." I still don't know what a felt need is. I think, I think I knew what they were getting at, what what they were driving at. Well, I stayed eight years at McKee Vocational, and then. Moved over to uh, the Lower East Side to uh, Sewer Park, the Melting Pot High School, uh, which is where, where it had uh, Jewish kids, Chinese kids, a lot of Hispanic kids. And there was a lot of racial tension there between the Chinese and Hispanics. So a lot of times uh, you had to diffuse the, the tension in the classroom and then try to deal with kids who were coming to, the, who were just arrived in the country, and it became I didn't English. I became a teacher of English as a second language, and I un, I understood their frustration because when I came to New York myself, ha, no, having no high school diploma, not knowing what to do with myself, doing menial jobs and feel, feeling humiliated all the time. That was my main and anger. That was what I brought with me from Ireland. In
2: 1970, still harboring literary dreams, Frank returns to Ireland to work on his master's thesis at Trinity College Dublin in the end though the experience rang hollow for him and by the late 70s he was back in New York this time with an offer to teach writing at the top public high school in the city
1: I'm invited to teach up there it's a school I, as a kid I could never gotten into in the first place. but I, I I'm I'm going up there to teach to teach English and that was a different story because Stuyvesant High School at that time was about eighty percent Jewish. The kids, and there were uh, so many of them living in the Upper West Side, and so many of them. They were so analytical and so sensitive, and so many of them in therapy, and <laughs> and and, 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 and su- suggesting that I go and do likewise. And, <laughs> I often heard them saying, "You need help, Mr. McCall. You should go. You should go and get help." But that, that was where I had to raise the level of discourse because I'd been in McKee vocation, I'd been in Sewer Park, and I was dealing with kids down in Sewer Park who, who were struggling with the English language. Now I go into Stuyvesant, and I say, open your notebooks, and the notebooks are already opened. Or oh, they really don't need notebooks because they retain everything you say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I could see... They they, they, were, they they were gazing out the window and doing crossword puzzles and so on, and then I realized I'd have to I'd have to bring up and start challenging them more. So but by cha- and then I, I went through a period of, of uh, a little period of tension because I, I I didn't I didn't know what to do with them, so I had to, uh, 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 I, I didn't know what material to use because back in McKee Vocational High School there were only, there were only uh, two books available for me two novels. One the kids called the dirty old man book, Silas Marner. (laughs) Uh, And the other, the dreariest novel ever written in America, Giants in the Earth. Italian kids in Staten Island trying to read about Scandinavian pioneers whose constant preoccupation was suicide. Uh, (laughs) But now, there was no end. There was no end to what I could do as a, as a teacher in Stuyvesant High School. I could have done, I, I, I had freedom. And they gave me, in about my third year there, they gave me writing classes. I, I don't know why. But I, uh, I had to read millions and millions and millions of words of high school, adolescent writing. Now, it's all right, as long as you lay down some ground rules. you tell them. In the springtime, especially juniors fall in love. It's always Jonathan and Susan, and and they're madly in love. And Jonathan is Jewish, and Susan is Chinese. And it's it's Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story all over again, and 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 they write stories about Jonathan and Susan, and their their families disapprove, and they get on the A train to rock away, and and. And they walk the beach and into the Atlantic Ocean till it closes over their heads and <laughs> gurgle, 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 gurgle. <laughs> and I had to tell them, cut it out. <laughs> and don't take on a story that you can't end logically. And it's some stories. David was in so much trouble with his teachers, and his family, and his family. And as he was crossing First Avenue, and he was hit by a truck. Okay. No more, no more, no more of that. But all along, I was—I le- think I was learning from their writing. That's the main thing. I was learning from their writing. I'd would learned, learned certain things in McKee, certain things in Sewer Park, and now here I am, with very gifted kids. Every time we enter them in, uh, uh, any of the poets in a competition. City University or or uh, the high school competition. I even had the kids sending poetry out to magazines because it, there was. I thought they was so good. There was no use existing in a vacuum, a mutual admiration society here. And I, I had I had kids uh, publishing pieces in the op-ed page of the New York Times, Seventeen magazine, and so on. So and they they would say, I would tell. They'd ask me qu- uh, questions about myself and growing up in Ireland. Then. I would, they'd say, they'd say, well, why don't you write something? Because every Friday they were required to bring in something to read. Why don't you bring in something to read? And I'd bring in something to read and there would be a a critique, a class critique. And they were good. They were open and they were honest and sometimes they were scathing. Uh, uh, But they didn't take advantage of the position as newly minted critics to destroy me. Uh, And then some of them said, you should write a book, you should write a book, and I did.
2: And what a book it is, in which a natural bard of classroom and barroom finally found his true writer's voice, a voice like no one else's. Frank left us for good in 2009, but any time the world stops feeling fresh to us, all we have to do is pick up a copy of one of his marvelous books and read a section, like this one toward the end of Angela's ashes.
1: There are slow days at the post office, and we sit on the bench and talk. We can talk, but we're not to laugh. Miss Barry says, she's the superintendent, Miss Barry says, we should be grateful we're getting paid to sit there, bunch of idlers and street boys that we are, and there should be no laughing. Getting paid and sitting for sitting and chatting is no laughing matter. And the first titter out of any of us, and out we go till we come to our senses. And if the tittering continues, Will be reported to the proper authorities. The boys talk her about her under their breath. Toby Mackey says, "What that old bitch needs is a good rub the relic." Her, her mother was a street walking flag hopper. Her father escaped from a lunatic asylum with bunions on his balls and warts in his wank. There's laughing along the bench. And Miss Barry calls to us. I warn G against the laughing. Mackie, what is it you're prattling about over there? I said we'd all be better off on the fresh air on this fine day delivering telegrams, Miss Barry. I'm sure you did, Mackie. Your mouth is a lavatory. (laughs) Did you hear me, Mackie? I did, Miss Barry. You've been heard on the stairs, Mackie. Yes, Miss Barry. Shut up, Mackie. I will, Miss Barry. Not another word, Mackie. No, Miss Barry. I said, shut up, Mackie. All right, Miss Barry. That's the end of it, Mackie. Don't try me. I won't, Miss Barry. Mother of God, give me patience. Yes, Miss Barry. Take the last word, Mackie. Take it, take it, take it. I will, Miss Barry. Thank you very much.
2: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To hear Frank McCourt's unedited talk, to explore the free archive of Sun Valley Writers' Conference recordings, and to learn more about the conference, please visit sbwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios.